Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Casey Aiden Wansbury, Vice President of Policy and Government Affairs at Instacart. Casey leads the company's public policy team on the federal, state, and local levels across North America. She joined Instacart in August of 2020, in the middle of the COVID crisis, just when the company was experiencing an unprecedented demand for its services from customers, shoppers, and partners. Prior to joining Instacart, Casey spent five years at Airbnb, where she rose to Director of Federal Affairs. Like all of our guests, however, Casey came up as a staffer. Her most recent job on Capitol Hill was the role of Chief of Staff to U.S. Senator Al Franken. Prior to that, she worked for Senator Joe Lieberman, rising to communications director, and also for the Children's Defense Fund and in communications roles for the Democratic National Committee and the Ohio Democratic Party. I first met Casey when, believe it or not, she was an intern in the Senate Democratic Technology and Communications Committee. Casey is one more example, for me anyway, of the truism that you never know who you're going to meet in politics. Casey and I recorded this episode on Monday, April 12th, and it pleases me to no end be able to say, Casey Aiden Wansbury, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. I'm so happy to be here, and it's so happy to reconnect with you. I think I've, um, if I think back, I think I've known you longer than almost anyone I've known in Washington. I was your your intern uh, among my very first jobs in Washington. So so great to have this opportunity to to uh, walk down memory lane a bit. The pleasure is absolutely mine. Um, you know. Knowing you then, uh, and I was only you know a year or two ahead of you, so I was a very yeah. junior staffer myself. Um, it it absolutely uh, meets the truism in politics that you never know who you're going to meet <laughs> and what they're going to do and become. Um, because I have really enjoyed watching you rocket uh, through Washington and so many interesting um, jobs that we're going to get to. Uh, but I like to start, as you know, uh, at the beginning. You grew up in California. Um, tell me about your family. Yeah, so I'm an only child, um, and I grew up. Uh, my my parents um, divorced when I was around seven years old, but they, uh, to their credit, did a fantastic job of really co-parenting throughout my whole to- my whole childhood. So, um, I you know I, I grew up um, with a lot of support, uh, and you know I think some really interesting role models. My mother. Uh, was a a teacher. She actually ran her own, uh, started and ran her own elementary school. Um, now that I work in Silicon Valley, I I think I realized she she was really an entrepreneur uh, and an innovator. Um, and I went to that school when I was in elementary school. Um, and uh, you know, I think when I think a lot about how I um, you know have treated learning and growing in my career, I think a lot of it does go back to some of the um, the things that she taught. I think it was her school was really focused on helping kids learn at their own pace, making sure that they were really driven by their their passions and and pursued learning through through what their interests were. And it was also really focused on experiential learning, making sure that we were really, um, there was a lot of field trips, a lot of really, you know, getting to understand how things worked in practice. And so I think all of those things, um, you know, really stuck with me. My dad was a, a ear, nose, and throat doctor, one of two local doctors in our small town of Eureka uh, up in the North Coast. Um, uh-huh. And um, you know, was really supportive of of me and my education, and I, I will be ever, forever grateful that he um, you know really focused on my education and and helped make it possible for me to go um, to Smith College uh, when I was when I grew up. 
And Eureka itself was quite an interesting place to grow up. Um, it's a it's pretty isolated up in the upper northwest corner of the of the of California. It's about a five hour drive north, no, uh, sorry, south to San Francisco, oh, and wow. about a three hour drive north to the Oregon border. So it's sort of really up there by itself. Um, and you know, in the beautiful redwoods and, and ocean, and it made for a really interesting, um, you know, really idyllic childhood in many ways. It's also a really interesting place politically. You had a lot of a mix of um, sort of environmentalists and, and progressive activists, a lot of folks that had come north um, during the 60s and 70s from San Francisco. You also had a, um, a logging and fishing community. Uh, that was really the industry there. And so uh, really interesting politics that I was able to kind of observe and be around from an early age. And so you mentioned politics. When did you discover, you know, politics as a passion of yours? Um, you know, my mother uh, had volunteered for the McGovern campaign when she was uh, in her 20s, and I think always had kind of a, an avocational interest in politics. She followed current events. So I do remember talking a lot as a kid with her about, um, you know, the Iran-Contra affair and Gorbachev and Glasnost and a lot of sort of things that were happening in world politics. Um, and she also took me with her to vote. So I, I definitely always remember having a, a sort of a sense of civic interest in duty. And then when I was in high school, I uh, started volunteering for the 92 uh, Clinton campaign at my local Democratic Party headquarters, literally just knocking on doors and handing out flyers and answering phones. Um, but I think, you know, going through that experience, being part of that, even if it was a small in a remote corner of California, um, being part of that and, and then seeing that win and feeling that feeling of having worked for something that I believed in and, and it working um, was re really impactful to me. And I think after doing that in high school, I was pretty hooked. And, you know, as soon as I got to college, I majored in government and, you know, was instantly looking for internships and focusing on um, how I could get get more of that. Yeah. So after graduation, you came down to Washington. You had interned there, as we mentioned. Um, and you found your way back to Capitol Hill in the communications track. So mm -hmm. and, and roughly speaking, uh, you know, there's sort of two tracks, you know, in, in staffing, uh, the, the policy track and the communications track. What appealed to you about working in comms, as it's known? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I, I did toggle a bit early uh, in both. I, I had internships in policy and in comms, uh, the comms one for you. Um, and I, um, the first couple years out of school, I worked at a couple different lobbying firms as an assistant, sort of working more on the policy side. But then I got a job with... Um, on the Gore campaign in 2000, working for Laura Quinn, our, our mutual yes. uh, former boss, um, who was at the time the communications director at the Democratic National Committee during the Gore campaign. So I was her assistant um, and, um, you know, really did basic entry level stuff. But that to me was the first real exposure to a top notch communications team. The team was spread across the country. Um, it was, you know, a lot of folks actually that, you know, went on to do really impressive things in, in Democratic politics after that. Um, but getting to see that team working, I think, was really impressive at that high level early on. And then I would say also just the it was clear to me that I, I think I was drawn to the variety of issues that you get to work on when you're in comms. You're not you're not really going deep in any one set of policy issues. You get to kind of engage on all of them. And you also get to be right in the middle of kind of where the action is, whatever the topic of the day is, that is the the thing that everybody's focusing on is what you're focusing on. And I love that combination. I love the breadth of it. And I really loved the ability to kind of be, um, you know, involved in the action that was moving. Yeah. Is there anything that you didn't like about it? 
or that you, you know, you found uh, stressful? Um, you know, I think that it takes a while to get to, to really learn the ropes, to learn how to do the work um, of, uh, of, of working with reporters. That's scary to start. And I think sort of getting over that hump of learning how to, um, you know, how to go on the record, how to uh, sort of think about how to think on your feet in that way when working with reporters takes some time. That, that you know, is a, is a skill you have to learn. Um, you know, and I also think the people don't always realize the just amount of sheer amount of logistics that go into the comms work. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, from my earliest internship working for you, like, uh, you know, putting together the sound equipment for press conferences is a thing that takes up a huge amount of your time thinking about seating, thinking about um, the logistics of a, a you know, a, a event with constituents. So there's a lot of um, sort of behind the scenes work that goes into making that moment work that I think, um, you know, it, it takes some getting used to and you're maybe not aware of it when you when you first start. Yeah. And figuring out you know, one, learning all the things that go into making the moment successful because any a failure along any point can cut into the message, right? If something, you know, you can build a beautiful event, right? But if somebody trips over something on the way to the podium, that's actually the, sto- the story. Or if the sign falls down or, mm-hmm. you know, like any yeah. number of things can go sideways and disrupt the entire purpose of the event. Absolutely. So you're really you kind of have to be thinking about all of the details and playing out all of the scenarios of how things could go, what could happen. You know, um, I think, you know, a lot of uh, sort of constantly thinking about all of those aspects, you get you get kind of trained to, to have your brain think that way. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as you have gone through your career, your you, while you've come up the communications track, so to speak, you've also had policy roles as chief of staff uh, to Senator Franken, also now at Instacart. Mm-hmm. So, how have you adapted, you know, to that world, and what do you like or dislike about it? Um, you know, I, I actually found the transition fairly um, easy, and I think I actually think communications was a great um, was a great training for management and a great training for kind of running the the whole operation, which is what I did as chief of staff and what I do now here in the private sector. Um, you know, you're I mentioned earlier, you kind of get to know a lot of issues. Um, you basically, you know, you're 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 often in the position in communications of. Um, you know, whatever the issue is, you need to figure out how to get smart on that quickly so that you can digest it, understand it, understand the key, like what are the key elements, the most important pieces of it? And then how do you explain that to the media or the public or, you know, now in the case of the private sector, maybe the business community who isn't, you know, familiar with the policy issues. So that I think the training of the ability to kind of figure out who the experts are in these areas and who that you need to talk to, learn from them, um, try and understand what the, the basic dynamics are that, that are going on and then figure out how to, you know, how to sort of step back and think, OK, how do I explain this to other people? But also what are the what are the real stakes that are involved here that we need to be, need to be thinking about as we make the decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what you do as a chief of staff is is that is thinking about, you know, who are all the stakeholders? What are the what's the context that we have? What are what are the really high level um you know, elements of this decision that we need to make. And then how do we tee that up to, you know, help the senator make a call on how he's going to vote or or what he's going to do? Well, and that's something that I think is, uh, it's probably not unique about the chief of staff position, but it is a real quality um, that's special about it. And that is, no matter how you got there, you're probably going to be asked to widen the number of considerations than you had in your previous job. I had I'd worked in communications before I had become a chief of staff. 
but that was once I you know was in that position, I realized, oh, that's just sort of one pipe into the decision making tree. Now I have all these other pipes that I have to factor in, and that type of you know the number of inputs and the type of um, interest weighing is a great experience for things that come afterwards. Absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, to me that that's it, that's the, that's the main sort of skill set that, that you, you know, that you, once you kind of become familiar with how to do that and how to factor those things in, um, you know, you can kind of apply that to any set of circumstances going forward that you face. Um, so I, I have found that, you know, really honing my ability to do that has been, um, has been really important. Um, you worked for two very high-profile senators, Senator Franken, as we discussed, also Senator Joe Lieberman. Uh, you were his communications director. They um, are two very different senators, um, while they, I'm sure they have some similarities, too. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to work for each of them? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, you know, it is interesting there. Um you know they are different in in several ways. I think they're you know they're slightly different generations, different different um, you know backgrounds in terms of their focus. Certainly different ends of the political spectrum when it comes to you know within the Democratic Party. Um, but they, I, I actually, as I think back about the two offices and the cultures that that we created in both those offices, and then the sort of some of the basic qualities of the senators themselves. There, they are actually there are some real similar similarities that I think about, um, and interestingly, the two of them got along really well and and were were good friends in the Senate. Um, you know, but when I think about some of the things that, you know, that they had in common, um, I would say you know both of them were really intellectually curious and also intellectually honest. And um, by and by that I mean you know no matter what the issue was. They they really wanted to understand, um, you know, why is it that way? Why are the dynamics this way? Uh, you know, if uh, there were, we're talking about constituents or um, advocacy groups who think differently, why? Where are they coming from? What is that perspective? Um, they were both very interested in that. And when you came to them with, a, you know, an issue or a decision you needed to make, you needed you knew you needed to come with having understood all those perspectives and and bring that to the table. But they were also both um, very interested in in honestly finding the best policy solution that, that they thought they could come up with, no matter what the issue was. And so, you know, the way that we looked at things when we made decisions in the office was really always about that sort of, you know, baseline of honesty of, of what is the issue here and how are we going to make the best call? And then how are we going to explain that call in the most straightforward, honest way? Um, so I think that tr that training to me that I, I really um, respect both both men having that in the back in the back of their minds. I also think they were both pretty courageous in their own way. They both taught me that, you know, they they were high profile, as you said. And, you know, sometimes uh, the decisions they would make, the votes they would take would get, um, you know, would get would cause controversy, would get attention. Um, and, I, you know, I think both of them, um, you know, made sure that when they were thinking about what they were going to do and the position they were going to take, it was really um, authentic to them and what they thought the right thing was to do. And, you know, so they would weigh the pros and cons and we would talk about what the backlash might be. But uh, but it was really, you know, important to them that they that they take a stand that they believed in. And so, you know, I, I, a couple of examples, I would say certainly Senator Lieberman, um, you know, supported the war in Iraq at a time when that was really not popular in the Democratic Party. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he 
you know, he knew that it wouldn't be. Um, and, and we, you know, we talked through as he, as he thought about it, you know, when to sort of take a position on this and, and how to speak out. Um, you know, it, it wasn't something that was even popular with his constituents. And there was a fear that it was going to be something that would, you know, potentially end his, his uh, career in his next election. But to him, it felt like, you know, he needed to, he needed to lay out the case, explain to his constituents why he thought the way he did. And um, and they, you know, reelected him for it, even though they even though it was very unpopular in Connecticut, they ended up they supported him because I think they thought that authenticity, um, you know, they trusted it. And I would say similarly with Senator Franken on the progressive side, you know, Minnesota is a very purple state. And so there would be moments where he would take a position. I can think of the, you know, gun uh uh, control legislation after you know, Sandy Hook uh, tragedy happened, where you know M- Minnesota is a is a hunting culture state, and it was not necessarily a popular position to support that gun control measure. There was even disagreement among our staff about how this you know what he should do. But to him, it ended up feeling like it was just really important to to vote with his conscience on that issue, and that he'd have to trust that the voters would trust him, and they did. So in today's political dynamic, it definitely seems like there's a bit of a shortage of people willing to take positions that are politically risky. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we hear a lot about, well, they're, they're concerned about their primary electorate or, oh, they don't, you know, they know they'll, they'll be uh, punished by, by voters. Um, and that's not, I don't actually believe that. We hear a lot about it. I think there are still some senators and uh, House members of both parties willing to take those risks. But from a staffer point of view, if, you know, chiefs of staff or communications directors or others are talking with their bosses today about, OK, how do we how do we do this stretch thing that we know you want to do, we know is good for the country, but we also know we're going to get a lot of backlash about what, you know, as a staffer, how do you prepare the boss for that conversation? Yeah, and I, th- I think that. Um, it, it partly goes back to some of what we were talking about earlier, which is that I think it's your job as a staff person to um, to lay out the context for them, to help them understand, you know, where like who are the who are the stakeholders that are involved in this decision and how are they likely to react? Where are they coming from? Why do they think what they do? Um, I think, you know, coming from a place of having that understanding and then walking them through, you know, here are some of the things we think could happen in a worst case scenario, a consequence if, if, you know, you take this path versus here are some of the things that could happen, you know, if you take that path. I think just helping them picture as much as possible what it could look like um, so that they're, you know, I think that what you don't want as a staffer is for your boss to to do something and then feel blindsided, feel feel um, like they didn't understand what they were walking into. And so I think a lot of what your job is, is to really paint that picture for them, walk them through sort of, you know, the, the, the stakes and the dynamics that are at play, and then help them come to, to figure out what that authentic, you know, position or viewpoint is for them, given those circumstances. And then once they make that decision, it's your job to do everything you can to support it and sell it and, um, you know, help people understand it, whether you personally agreed with the call or not. Yep. Well, and and to your point about the planning process too, like the there's the there's the decision that's made, and then there's often a lag before that decision becomes public, right? The the public part might be the day before the vote. Well, the decision might be a week before that, and so how do you spend that week building right what you will wish you had done when you when those communities who you know will be upset express their frustration. What will you wish you had done to soften that or explain it to them or, you know, help get help them see the context, too, and move on? 
Absolutely. And I think a lot of that, that sort of interim period is about um, relationships, really, and and thinking about, you know, um, you know, who, how are the various stakeholders that you have here going to react and how can you reach out to them and tailor your conversation with them to help them understand where this, you know, where the, your boss is coming from mm-hmm. um, and or how do you help them, you know, um, you know, in a different way if, if it's not this way and they're going to be disappointed, what else can you do together that would help them feel supported or, um, you know, heard? Yep. So, um, I need to ask you something uh, specific about a rumor that I heard um, about writing for Senator Franken. I understand that he was an exacting writer and anything with a typo or a grammatical error, you know, got the red pen. Um, Is that the case? And, you know, how did you set up a system to make sure things were error free? Uh, yes, it absolutely was the case. I think, uh, you know, as somebody who previously made his his living in a writer's room, um, he took it very seriously. Uh, so, yeah, it, w- it was challenging. I think the first thing that we did was make sure that we really hire strong writers um, and people who can, um, you know, can can approach it, though, in a collaborative way. I think an interesting thing about his writing background in particular is that, you know, in a in a television show writing room, it is cl- it, you everyone has strong standards, but it is collaborative. It's a collaborative process. And so that part of his background, um, I think, actually worked really well in a congressional office setting. So if we were preparing testimony for a hearing or we were preparing a speech, um, you know, he had very strong views on how he, you know, he wanted to express things, but it, he, it, he wanted it to be collaborative. He wanted to give and take. And so we, you know, we made sure that we had plenty of space for that. That was one thing is, is as a chief of staff, making sure that there was time and space to work with the the team that was going to be working on the the assignment with him to um, understand his voice, to you know make sure that they had time to kind of go through it and collaborate. Um, but then you know I think the other thing is you have to you know you ha- you had to make sure that people un- are okay taking criticism and are detail oriented themselves. And so you know you, you we couldn't we had for our speechwriters we had to have speechwriters who completely were comfortable with you know heavy red edits on their on their work um, yeah, sure. and. Uh, you know, but I, you know, I, I will say that Senator Franken worked as hard as staff on any of those writing projects, and so I think there was a real camaraderie that developed as a result of that between the staff and the senator. Um, you know, he would read every line of every bit of testimony before every hearing. He'd come in the next morning with all kinds of you know thoughts and questions and um, edits to his prepared testimony. And so you never, it was never, um, you know, you never felt ignored. You never felt that your work didn't matter. Um, it, so it was, it was, you know, certainly intense, but um, I think really rewarding for those who were part of it. So you mentioned staff and and the, the collaborative nature of being a staffer. You have hired a lot of people in your career uh, in the public sector and in now in the private sector. What are the qualities that you look for most uh, when you are interviewing people? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I think the first thing I would say would be, um, you know, I think hiring people that have a real, um, you know, intellectual curiosity, that I, which is what I mentioned before, is one of the things that I really learned from both senators I worked for. I think, you know, you you we're in environments where there's rarely a right answer. There's rarely a clear path. And so I think that people who are um, interested in learning and growing and thinking about everything with kind of a growth mindset is really important because um, you're you're going to have to grow and build and pivot and you know flex uh, no matter what your 
brought in to do, no matter what you think your job is, um, things are always changing. So that's the first. Uh, the second is, I think, you know, people that have empathy. I think the, I think public service is an environment where you constantly need to be thinking about what where somebody else is coming from and what they might be going through. So whether that's your constituents or your opponent in an election or, um, you know, stakeholders, uh, you know, lobbyists that are coming in representing various stakeholder groups, you need to put yourself in their shoes and understand that. And so I think the ability to kind of step outside of your own perspective and think about how others would think about this is really important. Um, and then the last thing, I think, you know, um, competence is underrated. I think just being able to be, like, do what you say you're going to do. Meet the deadlines when you say, you know, when you when you set a deadline. If, you, if you're running into trouble or roadblock, tell your boss so that it's not a surprise. I think just being able to really, um, you know, cover those basics, surprisingly not always true of all, you know, uh, people in this field. And so I think the more that people value that and recognize that that's actually what makes you somebody that your boss can trust with more responsibility, I, you know, I think that's very important. And uh, absolutely agree um, on all of those. Um, I really like your description of empathy as well and your prioritization of it because it does run through everything in government and politics, though it's not often uh, elevated uh, as a as a top uh, characteristic to look for. Uh, my next question for you is, do you have a favorite interview question that you like to ask candidates to help illuminate uh, some of these qualities? Uh, you know, I uh, I don't know that I have one question that I always ask. Um, I think you can I, – I do think that, you know, I usually ask something that will um, give someone an opportunity to to talk about how excited or interested they are in the work and the role. Um, and that to me is often something, I mean, you, you, you have to have passion for the work that you're doing, um, in this, in this business. It's hard. Um, it takes a lot of your time and, um, and you, you know, you, you have to really love it. And so I think if, I think if, when that comes through in an interview, that's something that I really pay attention to and key in on. Um, I also often will ask for, um, someone to walk me through, you know, a really difficult situation that they faced or a crisis. And, and I think learning about how somebody handles moments of crisis, um, is, uh, is, is often illuminating, um, and something that, that is a real, you know, a use case that they'll have on the Hill for sure at some point. Well, it's a perfect segue to something I, I want to ask you about because today at Instacart, you are working at a very, um, high level for a company like many, uh, and in an industry that is in the midst of a crisis. Our country has lived, is living through COVID, um, and you were at Airbnb right before this. So, you know, you, you that was a company in crisis during COVID and now Instacart is as well. What, you know, what have you learned about leading during a crisis from your days uh, on the Hill that is helping you in the private sector today? That's a good question. And I do think that that aspect of working on the Hill is very, it has been very helpful and is very helpful in the private sector um, because, you know, on the Hill you are, you're in the spotlight or your bosses usually all the time and you're dealing with really high stakes all the time. And so you become very used to um, how to handle rapid response situations and how to sort of, um, you know, get used to letting moments of crisis not panic you, but instead make you focus even deeper and figure out, okay, what are the build, you know, what, what's the next step in front of me? What are the next things that need to happen? How, you know, what are the, what are the sort of choices that we have to make right now? And then you build on that. 
Um, I, I definitely think that I, you know, have used that both at Airbnb and Instacart. And you're right. I, I, 2020 was a strange year um, working in the private sector. Having I started it, you know, the first half of the year I was at Airbnb when, um, you know, the uh, the world just stopped traveling overnight, uh, and for a, a travel company, it was it was pretty um, shocking. And um, you know, I, I think it, it did. You know, having been through so many various crises on the hill, I think it did help me sort of realize that okay, you know, like I said, we we needed to step back and think about in in our area and my portfolio. There was was the federal government. Um, What's about to happen? What are the things in front of us? Where where can I focus my energy that is productive? Um, you know, who do I need to be reaching out to? And it just helps you kind of create um, a bit of a focused list of what to do next. Uh, halfway through the year, I, I moved over to Instacart, and and um, you know, the pandemic has had uh, kind of the opposite uh, of, a, of an intense uh, re- reaction on their side, which is that they are you know overnight people uh, are you know the the interest in delivery grocery. Uh, just skyrocketed overnight, and they the company had to figure out how to prepare for that, how to be able to meet that demand and help people in a moment when nobody wanted to go outside. And uh, so, figuring out how to scale up the operation to to meet that demand and be helpful in that moment of crisis, I think similarly, it was a matter of just really being able to focus and not panic and think about you know okay what's what's the next step. You know, um, in building teams that are resilient and highly functional. Um, It's in addition to being individually good at one's job, et cetera, people in your position uh, and positions that you've held have to be mindful of the people that, you know, as individuals um, and not just their competency, but like, how are they feeling? And, you know, are they going to be able to sort of focus on their work today, given what's happening in the atmosphere? So, you know, based on lessons of people you've worked for, what do you try to keep in mind about, you know, the team, the people who are working, you know, for and around you? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that you, I think thinking about the whole person and what they're going through, um, you know, both in difficult moments, um, but also in moments of, you know, opportunity and career growth is really important. And I think, you know, the more you can help, uh, help understand and see and 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 um, account for the, the dynamics that every individual employee you have is, is dealing with, the more you can help them bring their best game to work. Uh, and so I, I definitely think it's a it's important. Um, you know, I think I, I do that partly through, um, you know, just conversation, just communication, making sure that we're all understanding each other and that everybody knows that, you know, burnout serves no one. Um, and so I think even in moments of crisis, even in moments like, um, you know, when you're in the in the final weeks or months before an election or when you're dealing with, um, uh, you know, the covid uh, situation and adapting to that, you do need to you do need to watch and make sure that people are taking some moments for themselves and are not letting themselves get to the point of burnout. Um, and I think, you know, we often um, are people that really want to work hard and want to succeed. And, and, you know, I hire people that work hard and want to succeed. And so I think we're really susceptible to that and and making sure that people are paying attention to that for themselves. Um, but then also modeling that, I think, as a as a leader is important. Um, and then, you know, on the on the you know longer term side, I also think it's really important to understand where where people are coming from, what their what their growth goals are in their own career, what they're looking for, how, what, how they're looking to grow. Uh, I think knowing that helps you um, as a manager think about how to help them get there, how to help 
um, make sure that you're giving them assignments that are stretching them in the ways that that they that will help them get to the next level, um, and giving them feedback on you know things that they need to do to improve. I think both sides of that, um, you know, having that clear understanding of where they want to go and seeing yourself as kind of a partner and helping them get there, I think is to me how you end up getting the best, highest performing teams. You know, anyone who knows you um, knows that you have been attentive to the careers of people around you. And to that point, just in preparing for this, I learned of a new organization that you are a part of called Chief. It's a private network built to drive more women into positions of power and keep them there. Can you tell our listeners about Chief, you know, what it is and um, how it works? Yeah, well, so I'm I'm a pretty new member. I just joined at the beginning of the year, but I I um, when I um, was invited to join, I was immediately excited about it because I think it's a continuation of the type of uh, networks of women supporting other women in positions of power that I've been, you know. Um, looking for and interested in cultivating in uh, in different ways throughout my career having gone to a women's college i i felt i saw firsthand how important it is to see um you know how liberating it is to see women role models to see women in every position women succeeding in every position and sort of and have that um that model but also those peers to work with uh, when I was in the Senate, I was one of a, probably about 17 out of 100 uh, chiefs of staff that were women. And uh, the 17 of us, I think, got really close. And, and you know, being a chief of staff is a somewhat um, can be a somewhat lonely job in some ways in that in your office, you are the only person with this job. You have no peers that have this work, this job. Um, and so, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with each other. Um, working with each other to make sure that we, um, you know, kind of were bouncing ideas off each other, getting to know each other, being able to commiserate. Uh, and in the business world, I was looking for, you know, I sort of informally look for that same kind of network, thinking about who else is doing this kind of work at other companies that I can learn from, that I can bounce ideas off, that I can talk to. And that's really what Chief is, is it's it's for um, women that are in the executive level in any industry, um, but sort of in an executive level role uh, to be able to meet each other and learn from each other and have sort of executive coaching together. Um, to learn kind of across industry. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's not only seeing women succeed in those environments that is really powerful and motivating, but being able to have and yeah, have figure out what you have in common, figure out how you may have faced some of the same challenges and you can work through them together. Um, it's been a, a really great network for me so far. And I, I definitely encourage other women executives who aren't yet members to join. Has there been um, a piece of advice that you've gotten in your career? You know, it can be recent or it can be, you know, from long ago that has really stuck with you. Yeah, I think um, when I was at Airbnb, one of the um, the, the leader of the Airbnb's learning and development team, uh, uh, Kate Shaw, taught a course on uh, on the growth mindset, on having a growth mindset. And that, you know, that's something that I realized had been something I was drawn to all for my whole career, but that I hadn't really put into words. And I think once she kind of articulated that, I realized how important it was, which is largely that it's really easy, especially as you get more senior in your career, to begin to develop your identity around what you think you're good at or a certain sense of yourself of how you, you know, this is this is how I am. This is what I do. This is what I'm good at. Um, and that can work. But I think what it can do is it can um, it can prevent you from really being able to learn from mistakes and to and or to realize that there is more you can learn from either you know your direct reports or uh, peers or others uh, even in areas that you think you're strong in there's more to learn and so she talked a lot about how um, important it was to sort of not think ha- have your identity be 
of growth and of uh, of orientation towards growth, not of any kind of fixed set of, of talents or skills. And I think when you're always kind of looking to improve and learn, that can really unlock uh, a whole other level, I think, of, of um, productivity. You are so right. And and I would say in politics slash government, there is often that phenomenon of people sort of claiming an expertise and, you know, wrapping themselves in it. And that becomes their identity and sort of what they're selling, you know, either around town or just professionally, that's who they are without looking to stretch to, yeah, you know, to new areas. And, that, so and I, that's where you, that's where blind spots start coming in, yes. right? Where you, you think you know and you're ignoring something that maybe you haven't heard before that somebody more junior has brought up or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So is there something that, you know, you're working on today that you're like, oh, that's something I want to get better at, or this is something I'm, I'm not terrific at, so I need to make sure I always have, you know, this person with me in that type of meeting? You know, I, I think um, I'm still relatively new to the private sector. I'm in year six, I think now, of being on the, on the private sector side. And that, you know, that was a really, making that transition was a really humbling experience coming from a moment where, and that's partly why I sought it out, coming from a moment where I had been, you know, in a leadership position on the Hill and, and had done it for 20 years, had been on the Hill for essentially a Hill or, or campaigns for 20 years, moving into an environment where suddenly I'm not really the expert at all in this environment. Um, you know, I, I know about politics, but I don't, I still need to learn how to adapt it to how to help um, these innovative, um, you know, hyper growth companies grow and navigate politics. And so I think that was a big wake up call for me. And that was a really a good moment for me to realize that I had a lot to learn. And so I, you know, since then, I, I think I've really been working on learning not only from my colleagues that come from the business world or the tech um, and engineering world, but also some of my colleagues who have done, uh, you know, who are maybe more junior than me, but who have worked on the private sector side longer, who have done this type of work um, you know, from this perspective, which is, uh, which is different. And so I think, you know, I, I'm constantly learning from that. You know, you mentioned the importance of learning from mistakes. And uh, I have a favorite recurring segment that I like to ask called In the Vault. Uh, can you share with us a story of when you royally screwed up and what you learned from it? I can. I the one that comes to mind um, is actually not from my time on the Hill. Between working for Lieberman and Franken, I worked for three years for a civil rights organization called the Children's Defense Fund. Yes, very famous. Um, and which was an amazing experience. Um, but um, I, I would say early on, I was the communications director there, and early on, we were. Uh, this was before the ACA. We were working on a children's health initiative. And it was really going to be our biggest advocacy campaign for that, you know, congressional cycle. And so um, we had worked up our policy that we were going to be promoting. We had worked up a whole advertising campaign and publicity around it. And I put together this big press conference for Marion Wright Edelman, who is a, um, you know, worked for Martin Luther King as a civil rights icon, is this very Legend. prominent person, put together this press conference for her to kind of come out and announce this and worked really hard to pitch it. We got to the day of the press conference and not a single reporter showed up, oh. which if, you, if you've worked in the press world at all, that's like the kind of nightmare that you have and then you wake up and you realize it didn't really happen. Um, it happened, not a single reporter. Um, oh. And I was still fairly new at the organization. And so it was especially challenging because this was essentially my first big um, moment there. So, you know... I think as I thought about that, I think I learned a few things from it that that still stick with me. 
The first is that I realized back to the point about growth that we just talked about. I had, you know, I had been, I had, I had gotten um, pretty strong at doing communications in a congressional setting um, where the stakes are really high and you're really navigating difficult press questions constantly. But I realized that, you know, I had, it's different when you work for an advocacy organization, right? You don't have, there's not a press corps that's ready to cover you. Um, You're kind of having to fight for attention. And so something that might feel like it would be press worthy or, or, you know, would draw reporters uh, in a congressional setting is is a little different in an advocacy setting. You kind of have to be scrappier and uh, and think about you know you have to be creative and think about how to get at it in a different way. And I had not properly um, internalized that, and so I realized that I you know you do need to kind of approach each new situation you're in, recognizing that even if you knew how to do it perfectly well in your old environment, you may not know how to work how to, this works in the new environment. And so you're, there's more to learn. The second thing is is I learned really you just have to suck it up and own it. I had to go up and tell Marion that she did not need to come down for the press conference and just to walk her through what had happened. And um, and then you kind of have to shake it off and move on. And, um, you know, I think sort of owning owning up to it is important to me that for mistakes and um, making sure that you're not, you know, I wasn't blaming the press or anyone else. I'm just sort of saying like, look, this is, I, I screwed this up. Um, but then not letting that, you know, um, sort of uh, let you become obsessed with it. You need to kind of just just move on and, and figure out, okay, what are we going to do to fix it? What are we going to do tomorrow? How else can we get press? I have had that happen to me as well. And those moments between when the reporters are supposed to show up <laughs> and when <laughs> the press conference is supposed to begin, oh, it, I mean, like the, the amount of acid that can fill a stomach yeah. is just <laughs> such great quantities. And time slows down, right? I mean, like every minute lasts an hour. Yep. So yep. painful. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, to your point, <laughs> good, great learning experience. Um, and you've put your finger on something. I, I do think sometimes when people come out of government, they underappreciate the fact that they've just worked for a newsmaker, i.e. Right. what they say is actually newsworthy because of who they are. And that's not the case when you work for most private companies, when you work for nonprofits, right? When you work in the advocacy space. It may not be news. So how are you going to get somebody to treat it as news? Absolutely. And it's a whole different skill. And I think, you know, it it really, it it made me have a real understanding and appreciation for how hard that is, but also for just the the different role that the advocacy, you know, that advocacy groups play in the political ecosystem. It's just, it's a different role. Um, And they do, you know, they, they do need to be often a bit more like, full steam ahead, sort of guns blazing, like you, you need to, you know, the the way that you interact with the media, the way that you kind of stake out your position is just different and it needs to be different to for them to have an impact on the, on the political dialogue. Yep. Okay. My last question for you is also one of my favorites. Uh, if I could raise enough money and get the permitting uh, approvals that I would need, I would build a hall of fame to staffers on the National Mall. And I'm open for nominations on who should have a statue in there. So, Casey, who would you nominate to the Stafford Hall of Fame? This is a wonderful question and um, and a hard one because I can think of so many really, really excellent staffers. But uh, I'm going to pick uh, Maura Keefe, who is yes. who I think we both know. Uh, she was uh, she's a consultant now. She was Senator Jean Shaheen's chief of staff for 10 years and overlapped with me when I was uh, chief of staff for Franken. She was also Senator, uh, she was also Congresswoman DeLauro's chief of staff. Uh, I don't know in the sequence of- She hired me. You. She hired okay. me and trained me how to be a press secretary. 
Um, she, yeah, and it, she's, in addition to those jobs, has done so many more in and around politics and Congress, um, you know, and, and I think is just a true veteran. But I'm picking her because, you know, not only was she a great model for me when I was a new chief in terms of, um, you know, being an advocate for her boss, being an advocate for her team, really navigating tough issues, but she was also a really great mentor and advisor to the to the chief of staff community in general. I mean, it was, uh, you know, she... Um, she really uh, supported and uh, lifted up women chiefs of staff. She supported and lifted up uh, in a bipartisan way, you know, uh, so many other chiefs of staff. And in fact, she, while we were both there, she really led the creation of the DSCC's uh, Women Chiefs, Women Lobbyists fundraiser series that they that they started. And she did that because, you know, among, among the things people may not realize is that when you're a Senate chief of staff, a big chunk of your job is raising money when for you know preparing for when your boss is in uh, is up for re-election, and it's hard for anybody to do. It's a hard thing to do. Um, I, you know, often it's harder for the newer chiefs who, uh, and and often harder for women chiefs who maybe don't have as many connections or haven't been around in in the sort of um, senior lobbying world as long. And um, you know, so she helped create this event where women chiefs would raise money from women lobbyists and and um, and really help support each other. And it was both a great networking thing for me to be get, able to get to know women chiefs and women lobbyists, but also we really were able to prove that we could raise money. Maura Keefe is a champion staffer, absolutely belongs in the Hall of Fame, uh, has trained so many people, not only who have worked for her, but around her. I mean, she yeah. really has made a career, um, a, a part of her career is lifting up people around her. And I wasn't going to share this story, but now I'll share my story of when the reporters didn't show up at my press event. It was my very first press event for Rosa DeLauro. Maura Keefe was the chief of staff. I've interviewed Rosa DeLauro for this podcast uh, before because she is a former chief of staff. Anyway, so I, I go through all the motions of what I think is planning a press event. And because my immediate... Um, experience prior to that had been in the Senate Democratic Technology and Communications Committee, where you and I worked together. There, our target audience was like the Senate press corps, right? So like when we, we, when we notified them of a press event, they were likely to come. They covered our Democratic senators. Well, I proceeded, you know, along those lines. Anyway, Monday morning, press event, you know, supposed to happen. It does not uh, attract any reporters. And my boss is out there, like waiting, you know, at the podium. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it, that ends poorly. And, you know, Mora comes in afterwards to like, you know, review with me. You know, she's kind of going through, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And she's like, did you call the reporters? And I was like, no, I, I faxed them. She's like, okay, you faxed them, but did you also <laughs> call them? I had not. And it was, she was like, okay, like, you know, <laughs> you always need to do that too, which, you know, I was young. Yep. I just failed to do it. I didn't know. And she didn't explode. She didn't yell. She was just like, I, you know, I, I could sort of see on her face, like, I can't believe he's such an idiot. <laughs> but, uh, she took it as a moment to train rather than condemn, uh, and it never happened again. And of course, you know, we had many successful stuff uh, you know, events after that. But it takes both sometimes making the mistake and being around people who take those to lift you up uh, rather than cast you aside. Absolutely, and, and she is one of those people. Absolutely. 
Well, Casey, um, I can't thank you enough. I, um, like I said at the beginning, it has been so fantastic to know you for as long as I have. Um, and I'm just so such an admirer of yours, and I'm so appreciative of your time today. So thank you. Thank you for hiring me as an intern all those years ago. And <laughs> yeah, thank you, Thank you for inviting me on today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Likewise. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. 